Well, church, it is great to be on your screen this morning. Um, as, as Kelly said uh, just a couple minutes ago, I am, I am uh, I guess it's bittersweet. Uh, Chris and I are super excited to be heading over to Abilene to, to work with college students, something that we have just adored about the AM church and um, grew through the Aggies for Christ. And, and the idea of getting to go and, and bless other college students and pour into them is something that Chris and I are just really excited about. But we're also, at the same time, we're sad to be leaving. Um, and I just wanted to thank the ministers and the elders for uh, for everything, but but also just for letting me me speak with you this morning and getting to share my heart with you. Um, hopefully, maybe not one last time, but one last time for a little while. And that's something that that I'm I'm ready ready to get to do with you. So for one more time, I'm going to ask that you bear with me as I nerd out just a little bit with some biblical culture and some Eastern perspectives and things like that. I promise you, you'll have a break in a little while. But that's what we're going to do this morning. So, um, we are talking about, if you saw any of the promotional material, the, the Tuesday Digest or maybe the Facebook post, I asked you all to read the book of Ruth before we got to speak this morning. And, th- and, and this is a re- there's a reason that I decided to ask about reading the book of Ruth, um, and a reason why we're preaching out of this particular br- book. This, where we are today, is we're getting towards the end of our third season Now, I know 2020 has been a very long year. I know there has been a lot that has gone on. But if you can think back to the the spring, or maybe even before that to the fall, and even the previous years, we decided that as a church we were going to work through these three seasons of of the life of our church. The season of invitation, which was the fall, welcoming students and inviting our neighbors and friends to church with us. The season of imitation, which was learning to grow and, and become more like a disciple of Jesus, which is why we preached through the Sermon on the Mount one year, we preached through the book of Matthew uh, this year, this, this growing in, in, in discipleship and whatnot. And then the summer months, we were going to try to do the season of incarnation, which is where we focus on being the hands and feet of Jesus wherever it is God has planted us. Now, as re, uh, the, these whole things that we plan and fancy committee meetings and thinking through and trying to be smart and wise with the time and the life of the church, sometimes God has a different plan, and COVID was God's plan this time around. And so, obviously, the, the three eyes got a little bit wonky um, when we weren't allowed to meet together and whatnot. But we wanted to circle back around and do just a little bit of incarnation um, before we start and begin just around the corner welcoming college students and welcoming our neighbors, and Lord willing, coming back together um, if that's what the Lord permits and the health and safety officials and all of that goes down. And there is not a better book to look at as far as the season of incarnation than the book of Ruth. And I hope by the end of this sermon, you're going to know why. So before we're able to just hop into the book, I need to talk a little bit about the differences between the Eastern and the Western perspective on the book of Ruth really on storytelling in general. We, when I say Western, I mean if, if you, your culture is shaped by sort of the Greek, European, American tradition, this is the Western culture and the Western tradition. So all of us grew up in a Western-minded culture. If you grew up in Asia or if you grew up in the Middle East, these are more Eastern-minded and Eastern-thinking cultures, and they have different cultural influences. Now, I'm going to do a bunch of generalizations, which are 
generally accepted to be true. I promise you, I'm sure you could come up with counterexamples. But in general, Western cultures, as they learn and think about reality in the world, they tend to focus on, they're more individualistic versus Eastern cultures are more collective. They're more linear thinkers. They think about time as one series of events after another, whereas Eastern thinkers are more cyclical, where they see history as this whole idea of a wheel that's continuously turning, and each event um, is um, a cycle and a pattern and a repeating process. And then the last thing that Western cultures tend to focus on is when they're trying to understand information and, and think about it, they think in abstract and categories. We think about ideas in the abstract. So whenever I think about a pencil, and I'm trying to categorize and say, what is a pencil? Well, I'm going to look at the various features of the pencil, and I'm gonna say, well, it's wooden, and it's hard, and there's a bit of graphite in it, and there's some rubber on the end. I'm categorizing it, and I'm thinking about it um, in that way. If an Eastern person were to describe a pencil to you, they would say, well, it's something to write with. It is a more, they, they think functionally, not in categories. So with all that in mind, this East versus West, let's look at the book of Ruth and let's start to think about how this might apply to the book of Ruth. I'm going to summarize it really quickly. It would be really good if you have read the book before you uh, hear the sermon, because I'm going to assume that you're just familiar with the topics. It's four chapters. It's a great read. Um, it's something that you could do. So if you're watching this with your family, you could just pause me right now and just read the book really quick and then hop right back in. Um, but that's something that, that I'll just give you a summary if you want to just keep rolling. That's okay. So Ruth is a story, um, it begins with a man named Elimelech who has a wife named Naomi. And they live in Bethlehem, which is where David was born. It's the city of David. It's where Jesus eventually is born. Now there's a drought in Bethlehem. And if you know anything about Israel, you'll know that a drought, Bethlehem is right on the edge of the agricultural line. It takes eight inches of water a year in order for sustainable crops to be grown. And Bethlehem gets right flat at eight. If you keep walking towards the Dead Sea just a little ways, it goes straight down to six, five, four, and it turns into the shepherd country where only little lichens and small plants will grow. You can't actually have sustainable agriculture. So a drought in Bethlehem is a really big deal. That's like me saying there's a drought in Lubbock. Those poor souls over in Lubbock only get barely any rain to begin with, and if there's a drought, it's just really gonna mess them up. And so a drought happens, and in order to survive, Naomi and Elimelech take their two sons and they go over to the land of Moab, which really is not that far away. They walk through the Rift Valley and across the other side of the Dead Sea. Mileage-wise, as the crow flies, it's like 10 to 15 miles. Now, it's really rough terrain, so it would have taken a while. But it was a big journey, but they left the promised land in order to survive. The, the, uh, the author of Ruth doesn't really comment on this pro or con. It just says that this is what happened. They're trying to survive. And as they're over in the kingdom of Moab, Elimelech's two sons get married. And they marry Moabite women, which is, we're not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but again, it just kind of keeps rolling with the narrative. Tragedy strikes again. Elimelech dies, as does his two sons. And Naomi is left with two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi, being a good woman and wanting these women to be protected, says, um, 
hey, Orpah, Ruth, I love you. Go back to your father's houses because I can't provide for you and I'm gonna go back and be a poor destitute woman and I don't want that life for you. You can go get married again. Go back to your father's houses. If you know anything about ancient Near Eastern culture, everyone, if you were a woman, you were protected by the men in your clan. This is just the way that the world was a harsh place and if you did not have a man who was married to you or was your father um, or maybe a, a grown son to t protect and provide for you, you would be exposed to all sorts of dangerous situations. And so this story is, it starts with this tragic drought, and then it leads to more tragedy of the loss, and then you have three women, two of them, either if they're in Moab, Naomi's a foreigner, if they're in Israel, then Nor Orpah and Ruth would be foreigners. They are in the most vulnerable of vulnerable positions. And Orpah returns to her father's family, but Ruth says no. Wherever you go, I will go. And your God's going to be my God. And I just have to pause and think about, Ruth's husband must have treated her really well because she saw something in that that would make her want to stay with Naomi, make her want to risk everything, to not only be a woman who doesn't have a husband in a foreign land, but be in a foreign land as well. She's the most vulnerable of vulnerable. So she and Naomi return to Bethlehem, and Naomi says that my name's not Naomi anymore. My name is Mara which means bitter. My so call me bitter because I'm just angry with everything. Um, Ruth decides to, to try and, and get some food and get some money. And so, uh, so what she does is she starts to glean behind um, these fields. Now in the Torah, the, the law that God gave Israel, uh, the poor and the foreigner and the widow, they're allowed to do this. This was set up for them to take care of them. And Ruth catches the attention of Boaz and eventually they end up getting married and, it's, and Boaz redeems Ruth and Naomi and it's this wonderful story of redemption. That's kind of like big picture, the story that happens. And most of us here in College Station, as Westerners, we sort of think about this story in terms of the individual characters and the decisions that they make. We rightly praise Ruth for her courage and her commitment. We honor Naomi for the endurance of suffering. And we bless God for Boaz and the love that he, he and Ruth discover together. We then see ourselves as, as characters based in the story based on our own experience. So maybe, maybe you've had a situation where you've experienced tragic loss and you really feel that bitterness that, that Naomi felt. Or, or maybe you had a chance where you took a risk and did something big for God and you can see that courage that Ruth has and it inspires you to see yourself in that. Or maybe you see yourself in Boaz and, and that's a character you identify with or aspire to be. You start thinking in terms of the individual characters in the story. That's not wrong at all. But it's also not complete. Because if all we do is focus on the individuals, we miss a really cool part of the book of Ruth. We miss the people of Israel, the clan of Elimelech, how the community is acting and responding to this situation. You see, the book of Ruth is often taught as a love story. Ruth is a love story, but it's not a love story between Ruth and Boaz. It's a love story between Israel and her God. In the premarital counseling that Carissa and I went through, we learned about these five love languages. The whole idea is that when people are shown love, they tend to show it in the language that they want to receive love in. And so there are five love languages, receiving gifts, words of affirmation, acts of service, physical touch, and quality time. 
And depending on your personality and where you came from and, and a lot of different factors, you're going to tend towards one of those five as being the, the way that you, bet you really want to feel as if someone else is showing you love. Now for me and Carissa, we've discovered that I receive love best through words of affirmation, while Carissa receives love best through quality time. And so if I want to be a good husband, I need to not, uh, giving her gifts or acts of service or physical touch or words of affection, those are all good and I should do that, but I really need to make sure that I'm paying attention to the quality time because this is the way that she best receives love. And for Carissa, spending quality time with me is good and I'm happy to do it, but she needs to be sure that she's showing me those words of affirmation. Now, this works all well and good between uh, couples, husband and wife, and, and also if you want to just show your friends and be a better friend, um, learning the love languages of your friends and learning to show them, that's a, that's a great thing to do. Um, but it doesn't quite work between us as people and God. Because I would argue that there's a sixth love language, the love language between human beings and God. And that love language is obedience. If we want to show God that we love him, we need to follow his commandments. And those aren't my words, those are Jesus' words. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Or in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, what's called the Shema, or what, what Jesus calls in the New Testament the greatest commandment, it's this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your heads and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your home and on your gates. So that verse right there, it says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then here's how to do it. You follow his commandments and you learn them and you teach them to your children. And so in light of the book of Ruth, these were the, this was the way that the people of Israel can show God affection. So in this point in the story, we have a foreigner who's also a widow and another widow um, who have just come back to the people of God. And I want to read a few commandments that we see in the Old Testament, in the book of the Torah, the law that Israel was supposed to be keeping at this time. And let's see if it sheds any insight on the story. So in Exodus 22, it says this, You shall not wrong an immigrant or oppress him, for you are immigrants in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or a fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Exodus 23, you shall not oppress an immigrant. You know the heart of the immigrant for you are immigrants in the land of Egypt. Leviticus 23, and when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. Nor shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the immigrant. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 22. When you have finished paying the tithe of your produce in the third of the year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite and the immigrant and the fatherless and the widow so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Deuteronomy 24. When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the immigrant and the fatherless and the widow, Let the, that the Lord your God may bless you in all of the work of your hands. Deuteronomy 27, 
Cursed be anyone who perverts justice done to the, uh, due to the immigrant, to the fatherless, and to the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Leviticus 25. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. Now let's look at the book of Ruth. These are the commands that Israel was taught, that they were supposed to follow to show God that they love him. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side in the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go up to the fields and pick the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turns out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of the harvesters, Whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, She is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Do not go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars for the, that the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground and she said, What have I done to find such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland, and you came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not even have the standing of your servants. At the mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She, offered, she ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the leaves, do not embarrass her. Rather, pull some stalks out for her from the bundles and leave them out for her to pick up. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned from the field until evening. And then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it turned into about an ephod. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she'd gathered. Ruth also brought and gave to her what she had left over from the meal. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today, and who, where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked today was Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him. Naomi said to his daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing kindness to the living or the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting the grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it'll be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because if someone in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls and to Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So what was the clan of Elimelech declaring to God? 
They were saying, we love you, we love you, we love you, we love you. Boaz and his men, this family, they followed the Torah. They followed the commandments. They saw a foreigner. They saw a widow. And they took notice. And they went above and beyond. They didn't just leave the corners. They pulled out from their own stuff. And they gave it to them. They gave it to Ruth. They followed the Torah. And they redeemed this whole family. They followed the Torah. And they saw that a broken family, grieving through tragedy, was able to be restored. Because eventually... Not only does Boaz just feed her, Boaz marries her and buys that property back. He follows the law exactly as it was written. And a foreigner comes to know the God of Israel. A foreigner, an immigrant, recognizes that there is a God in Israel. She was drawn. She was drawn by something about her husband, by something about Naomi. Something was different about them. And she said, it's better for me to risk it over there than me to go back where I'm comfortable. The clan of Elimelech followed the Torah and they showed Ruth what God was like. And because of that, God took their faithfulness and he made Ruth the grandmother of David. Ruth is in the line of the Messiah. If you go back to where it all began, to Sinai, where God revealed himself to Israel, where God made a covenant with the nation, he made a covenant with them and said, you are my people, but he also gave them a mission. Exodus 19 says this, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you know anything about a priest, they have two primary functions. The first is a mediator. They mediate the relationship between people and God. They show the people what the God is like. The second is a representative. If the priest is harsh in an ancient temple cult, the God is probably harsh. If the priestess is is a fertility goddess or something like that, the priestess is going to accentuate those features in her. The priest is a representative of the God. So when God is saying that you, Israel, your whole nation are my kingdom of priests, what he is saying is that your job is to follow my law and in doing so, the nations around you are going to see what I'm like. Israel's on the only land bridge between Africa and Asia. There's trade going through there all the time. If there's a community of people where there's no poor among them, is what Deuteronomy says, where everyone is taken care of, where foreigners and immigrants are treated like brothers and sisters, where the widow, the most vulnerable people, are taken care of, they're going to see that and say, something's different about those people. I want to know what their God is like. Surely there's a God in Israel. But that's Israel. What about us? What about the church? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter's speaking to the exiles, the church in Asia, and he says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Brothers and sisters, the mission is the same. We are the church, the people of God. When we walk by the Spirit and follow God's command to love one another, to love our neighbor and our enemy, 
to protect and care for the vulnerable, for the marginalized among us, the widow, the immigrant, the outsider, the orphan, the imprisoned, those who've been left behind by society. When we love them and treat them like our brothers and sisters, the world gets a glimpse of what God is like. And they want to be a part of it. Ruth caught a glimpse. She caught a glimpse of what this God in Israel was like, so she risked everything for it. My question is, what about us? Have we caught a glimpse of the faithfulness of God, of the love of God? When someone walks into the AM Church of Christ, Lord willing, soon, when someone meets us at work, when they find out that we're a Christian, are they seeing some little bit of God in us? Are they saying this person's different or this group of people is different? You know, there's a lot of missional strategies out there. You can read a lot of books on it. God lays out his missional strategy in the Bible and he said it's pretty simple. Love one another. For the way that it, it, they will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. First and foremost, church, are we a people who love one another? When someone meets us, are we just marked and known by our love? Because if we can do that, then God can turn water into wine. God can make our faithfulness and our love to one another. And he can turn it into something beautiful that will change the world. That will change College Station. That will change hearts and minds. So it's the season of incarnation. And the church is scattered. We can't be together the way that we want to. But you're still on Zoom calls with your coworkers. You're still going to the grocery store, hopefully with a mask on. Is your attitude towards this whole thing reflecting something about the nature and character of God? Is the way that you're handling the stress of 2020, does it say something about who your God is? Because if you do that, who knows what God can do? Guys, this is time for us to be on mission. Time for us to show the world what God is like. And I can't wait to come back to the AM church, to come back and visit, and for me to see and hear the stories of what God has done through your faithfulness. Because I know you, and I know that your hearts are beating for God. So my prayer for all of us is that we take courage and that we live the way that God intends for us. Because if we do that, the world will see what God is like.